So it's like well, we're beating ourselves up, and it's not even like what that person is probably not doing is probably not perfect either. Yeah. Right. In the you know, 50 years, 100 years from now, we're probably going to understand it in a different way. Like maybe we'll actually understand what fascia really does. Right. Right. I remember way back in 2008 when we opened iFast and selling sports performance training was not easy. Now, granted, we had some things stacked against us. First off, we were dead in the middle of a recession, which didn't help. We're a new business. A lot of people didn't even know what sports performance training was or, you know, we kind of had to educate them on why they needed it. So it wasn't easy. And that was 14 years ago. Now imagine doing that 20 25 or even 30 years ago. Well, that's the struggle that Ben Shear was up against when he first opened his gym. Because Ben knew he didn't want to train the general population, but at the same time, convincing athletes to come train with him would not be an easy feat. So not only did he have to educate the public on why sports performance training was important, but then convince them to pay for it as well. But since then, Ben has become a true pioneer in the strength and conditioning space as he's well-known in both the hockey and golf training worlds. Ben's mantra is simple. Rather than blindly guessing as to what a client or athlete's needs, he's using force plates, 3D motion capture, and even the Exerfly to help get the best possible results for his athletes. And the coolest thing is he's seeing those results pay off in the real world. Ben has trained more than 20 PGA Touring professionals, including a former world number one golfer and major champion. And he's been named one of the top 50 golf professionals in the country via Golf Digest magazine. So it's safe to say his methods are producing results. Now in this show, Ben and I are going to break down how you can merge technology and a more robust assessment process to write hyper-specific training programs. Sure, you can do a little bit of everything and get a result. And trust me, I've done that myself in the past. But what if everything you put into a program was truly intentional and specific? What kind of results would you get then? Now, if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. If you're new here, welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. Now, like Ben, as I've mentioned, I've owned a gym at IFAST for 14 years now, and I know the struggles that come with running a facility. But what I'm really excited about is finding ways that we can use technology, even if it's cheaper and more basic than what Ben uses, even if we're talking about stopwatches and jump mats, very basic tools that we can use to help our athletes get awesome results. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this awesome episode with Ben Shear. Today's episode of the Physical Preparation Podcast is brought to you by Exerfly. If you're unfamiliar with flywheel training, it's a method of strength training where your athletes generate resistance by using the inertia of a flywheel instead of traditional gravity-based resistance training. By accelerating and then decelerating a disc, your athletes generate resistance at all phases of the movement. This allows for high force training as well as eccentric overloading without the need for crazy heavy weights. I first got interested in flywheel training because I wanted my athletes to be better prepared for sport. Standard free weight training is great for the early preparatory phases, but I wanted something that could improve the rate of force development in both the concentric and eccentric phases of the lift. 
Most importantly, I wanted to make sure my athletes were prepared for those eccentric forces that they'll encounter in sports. And with their motorized technology, the Exerfly allows you to increase the eccentric phase of the lift from anywhere from one up to 80%. The biggest objection I had early on was learning a new piece of tech or equipment. After all, sometimes these things sound great, but really aren't all that functional, or they take forever to figure out. But luckily, if you take the time to watch a few short videos and experiment a little bit, you'll be using the Exerfly like a pro in no time. Setup is quick and easy, and my athletes are absolutely loving it. Last but not least, there are tons of different exercises and variations you can use as well. Whether we're talking squats, hinges, presses, split squats, if you can think of it, chances are you can figure out a way to do it with the Exerfly. The really cool thing is Exerfly is used by numerous teams in the NFL, NBA, over 50% of the English Premier League, and numerous Olympic developmental programs as well. Now as a small business owner, I normally think, hey, this is way outside of my budget, I can't afford it, because we all know in a small business, every penny counts. But Exerfly has you covered there as well. They offer 36 month interest-free financing, so you can get started ASAP with your training and pay as you go. And when you factor in a 30-day money-back guarantee, two-year warranty, and free shipping, I really believe this is a solid investment. Look, the bottom line is this. If I don't really love something, I'm not going to promote it on my show. I love my Exerfly, the results I'm getting with it, and I think you will as well. To learn more, head over to exerfly.com so you can start building some savage athletic beasts in your gym. Again, that's exerfly.com. Ben, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to chat and catch up. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm uh, one of those crazy guys who likes to work with golfers on one hand and <laughs> hockey players on the other side. Yeah, you know what makes it fun is it's so different, but also so much the same. And yeah. you know the types of people and the variety, at least for me, keeps it interesting. You know, I'm not only just doing one thing, right. but I can actually kind of really focus on working with two different types of athletes. Yeah, I love that, man. So talk to me, what led you to the world of physical preparation? Like, how did you get started in this whole space? Yeah, so really, originally, it started with my own problems. <laughs> like, <Okay>. I think <laughs> some, some of us. Uh, yes. Like, as a kid at 16 years old, I played tons of sports. And one day, I was pushed into a pool in the low end. And I'd always worked out for football and all that kind of stuff. And obviously, you can imagine what we did. I'm 54 years old. You know, we read Muscle and Fiction and, yep. you know, had our knuckles on the ground doing flies as heavy yeah. as we could, ripping our shoulders out of the joints, yeah. all the good old day stuff. But I got pushed into this pool. I landed on the base of my head and I cracked a bunch of vertebrae. Ooh. And the, the doctor told me if I hadn't been working out, I would have been paralyzed. Oh, wow. So it was a long, slow rehab process that I ultimately was okay with. But I had always been a workout guy. It kind of saved my life a little bit. Yeah. And then I and then I kind of enjoyed the rehab process as well. And that kind of sparked some interest that I probably wouldn't have had uh, if I had not gone through that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, that's a pretty impactful moment in your life. Uh, literally impactful. Literally <laughs> impactful. So how do you take that and that interest into what you're doing now like would you mind sharing with us kind of your career path because i think a lot of coaches are interested in this right like they're maybe not where they want to be yet so i think it's helpful to hear the journey of other successful coaches yeah so at the time 
I didn't really think anything of it, to be honest. I was right. just going through it. I was a kid. You're going through the thing and you're like, whatever, you know, this is interesting. And yeah. I originally was going to school for economics and finance. I thought I wanted to be like a Wall Street mogul. Okay. Um, obviously, that hasn't worked out so well for me, <laughs> <laughs> but OK. And then, you know, I was just taking some like elective classes in kinesiology and biology and stuff like that. In the end, you know, again, like I said, I'm 54 years old, so being a trainer wasn't what it is today. Like you right. don't go to school for exercise science and be a trainer to be a strength coach. Like right. it wasn't even the thing. Like you became a gym teacher. Really, that was your only option. And that yeah. wasn't really the path I was on. So, and then after I ended up finding that NYU had this program through their school of continuing education on how to be a trainer. Okay. And it was like a two year program. And you basically took all the sciences and stuff, but did everything like exercise testing, nutrition for performance. It was like really targeted stuff as opposed to like, oh, go for four years and take all these general classes and you have right. two years worth of the specific. It was all just dialed in. Yeah. Um, so I started with that. You know, back in that day, there was no internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? So there, there was no there was no learn by doing performance seminars. There were no any of those things. Right. Right. We didn't we didn't live in that world. Um, and I found some people that I thought were really smart. I actually hired them as my trainers who were doing like more sports related stuff. Okay. And I would say, hey, imagine I'm, you know, blah, blah, blah or whatever. And, and I started learning and my passion just kept growing and growing and growing and growing until the point where I was like, you know, what? I actually want to do this like as my job. Yep. And I started doing it. And, you know. I really quickly realized as I was doing training, I wasn't interested in doing general fitness. Right. So I, I wanted to work with athletes and I had some athletes and it was great, but you know, I live in New Jersey, by the way. So okay. like living in New Jersey, you know, it wasn't like there were tons of pro athletes waiting around looking for us sure. and sports performance training. This is 1991, right? Yeah. So sports performance training in, in a private sector business, really wasn't a thing. I mean, right. Mike Boyle, maybe Parisi a little bit. Maybe there was like four people in America right. actually doing this as an actual business outside of collegiate or professional settings. Yeah. So there weren't a lot of pro people in my neighborhood. And I was like, okay, well, I had one or two guys. So that was fun. But I was like, well, I can't, you know, have a real life with that. That doesn't pay the bills. Right. Then I was like, well, I got some college guys. Well, but they're only home in the summer. And then I was like, well, I can get high school kids. You know, like now I'm moving down the pyramid from pro to college, yeah. high school. And I was like, well, but they go to school all day. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, how am I going to make any money doing this? I can like train from 3.30 to 8.30 at night or whatever the case may be. And then I said, you know, what other people are out there that have a passion for what they're doing, have some sort of performance goal, can afford my services, and actually have some time in the morning that I can actually see them so I can now have morning and afternoon clients. And guess what? Golf fills that bucket. For sure. Right? Yep. You know, not that these people were professional athletes, but these people are passionate about their sport, yes. about playing better. Like they're fanatics. You know, people would come in. I'd be out on tour traveling around, you know, in the 90s and I would go to an event and, you know, my regular client at home would come in. They'd be like, oh, you were at TPC Sawgrass. I remember I played there in 1986 and on the 12th hole, my third shot. Nah. I was like, Man, these, these people are like crazy. Like they can yeah. remember everything. So I, I tapped into this passionate market of people mm -hmm. who had disposable income, had performance related goals, had a passion for doing it. And I was like, boom, off and running. And then the science part of it kicked in, right? You start learning that, wow, golf is actually like a really scientifically understood sport. And then that's really where my passion kind of jumped in. It's like, it solved the void from a business perspective. And then from an intellectual perspective, there was a lot of really cool stuff going in golf that I also enjoyed. So then it was like, boom, this is my kind of. This is go. your thing. This is your yeah. thing.
That's awesome. Yeah. So that's what I want to focus on with you here today, because as I was kind of going through your work and the things that you're passionate about, obviously, you love to assess your athletes. You have to love to use data and information to drive better training decisions. So for starters, I mean, maybe this is a really big question, but I just love to hear what you're doing to assess an incoming client or athlete. Yeah, so it's not all, you know, technological data driven. Some is, you know, traditional movement assessment type sure. of stuff that we're looking at. So, but it's still data. It's still data if we just call data information yes. uh, for, for what it's worth, right? So I use a bunch of different movement screen stuff uh, that's more as opposed to saying, I like the FMS or I like the blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. I would say I'm not an anything guy. Yeah. I like a lot of stuff from a lot of places. Yeah, that's great. Right? And I've learned yeah. from a lot of guys, whether it be a guy like a Michael Mullen or it's, you know, I'm friends with a lot of guys in Norway who created like the 1080 map system. Okay. Guys who do red cord stuff, guys who do all different movement stuff. And I would say my assessment from a movement and like mobility, stability, let's call it perspective, is a conglomeration of a lot of different stuff blended together. Yeah. And then obviously with our athletes, both golf and hockey, Power and speed are really important to what we're doing. Yep. So that's kind of where I start getting a, a little bit more involved on the technological side, where I start bringing in, and in my gym, I have a lot of cool uh, techie equipment. I have a Proteus. Uh, I have Exafly equipment with the motorized systems, yeah. you know, that have all the kind of data that that's pumping out, you know, power and, you know, newtons and watts and meters per second and all that kind of stuff. I have a 1080 motion quantum. I have a force, I have force plates, you know, ballistic balls with sensors, med balls with sensors in them. Oh, my gosh. It, all kinds of cool stuff. Yep. So depending on obviously the sport, we're doing a battery of power testings, whether it's, you know, purely looking at something like jumping on a force plate, could be a rotary thing on the Proteus or throwing a med ball. And we're always trying to understand kind of where people fall on this force velocity continuum. Because I think at the end of the day, you know, if you're trying to build power athletes and speed athletes, that's where the magic lies, right? You know, yeah. are we strong enough to be fast? Are we fast enough to be strong? Where should my time be spent? And I think, you know, in the training world right now, I kind of say, you know, we, we have this kind of throw a sheet over it kind of mindset, meaning like, hey, we'll lift some heavy stuff. We'll do some stuff fast. Right. We'll throw in a few jumps, you know, and we kind yeah. of just like, like, okay, well, that's good. It's like, well, of course, that's good, right? Like you're doing some good stuff there potentially, but is it? optimal is that really the best use of this person's time or are they really on one end of this continuum or the other where your focus should be right yeah and even with jump testing okay well you have a high vertical or you have a low vertical well that's just the that's just an outcome yeah it's not actually why you do it right it's not right. it's not what made up that 30 inch 35 25 15 inch whatever vertical right. you had why do you jump the way you want so i think that's where technology and data and the sports science side can really come in and start shedding some light from a program design perspective of kind of where we need to drive our decision making and what someone's program should start looking like. Yeah. Okay. So I feel like we almost jumped ahead here. I want to go back because just hearing you talk about data, I know how passionate you are about it. Like when did this get in? How did you get started in that space? Right. Cause you did all the training stuff and you got interested in that. You started training. But like, where did you get into the data? Like, what was your gateway drug there? So I would say, like, I think I said that earlier, like, golf has been a really scientifically 
he studied sport, probably more than any sport in the history of sports. Yeah. And for the main reason being, it's simple to study, right? Like yeah. you stand in one place, the ball's sitting on the ground, you go when you want, there's no, you're not reacting to anything. Right. So, so we started able to catch ground reaction force data. We've been able to catch 3D kinematic data. You know, obviously in golf, we have these things called track man that measure everything, the club and the ball and all these interactions, the physics of that interrelationship. So we, golf is driven around some scientific stuff yep. for a long, long, long time. Like long before sports science was a thing, this was going on in golf. I mean, it was put in some journal somewhere that probably nobody ever read, <laughs> um, you know, but back in the day when I first started doing this in the early 90s, I actually started reading those things. And I'm the crazy guy who like called up the guy on the phone at the university. It was like, hey, by the way, I read this really cool article you did. I have some questions. And what you learned quickly is most of these guys back then who were doing research in labs, they couldn't be happier that somebody <laughs> had some interest in what they were doing yeah. and actually had questions and wanted to talk about it. They right. thought they did it to get their PhD or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And they're going to write an article. They're going to publish it so they can get their doctorate. And I checked the box. All of a sudden, someone's interested. And they were like, you know, why are you interested? I said, well, I'm trying to understand, like, how what you said in your research should be impacting what I'm trying to do in the gym right. to improve performance, right? So, and the better I got at that, the more I was interested. And obviously now we're in this world of information age where something like 3D, which back then was this arduous, torturous process, is now something, I mean, literally, we'll see how accurate it is, but, but literally with your iPhone, one camera only with AI, people are doing 3D kinematic data now with nothing, yeah. real time, real yeah. time, right? So we're in an information age. I think that anybody in our world who doesn't think we're going in this direction, is missing the boat because it's our industry is no different than every other industry in the world. Yeah. Technology, yeah. information, that's where the whole world is going. And that's where we're going. And then you see it in the professional sports level across a lot of the professional sports that, you know, now teams have whole sports science teams yes. working with their players, right? So we're going that way. And my thing was like, well, I've been doing some of this stuff longer than these guys who are doing it at the professional level. Why am I not doing this in my facility? Right. So now I have lots of really cool equipment, you know, where I can start doing this in-house. I think oftentimes better because there's no pressure of it being part of the team. Yeah. The players aren't worried about, I don't want to say judgment, but judgment, right? Like right. players players are scared of data, right? Like yeah. I wear an aura ring as an example. Well, you think players want to know? They you think they want the owner of their team to know they went to bed at three in the morning last night? Right. Or <laughs> whatever. Like the data is a scary thing for players, I think, when the team is doing it. Yeah. Because what does that tell, you know, hey, maybe this guy's going to fall apart. He's up for a new contract. And based on some of this data, mm, I think he's actually going the other way. Yeah. Or whatever the case may be. So in the private where they feel safe with us, it's actually just information to help them hopefully avoid those pitfalls. Yeah. So I've had our athletes really be receptive to kind of taking a deeper dive. Because they feel like I'm not, I have no incentive to good or bad as far as how their contract goes, how much they play or right. don't play or any of those things. So I think that's what's pretty cool about the times right now. Well, yeah, the they know that you're there to help them, right? You're not judging them, right? You're there to help them and to have the biggest impact. So they're going to be more trusting of you and more willing to kind of share and open up about what's going on. And yeah, it's yeah. there's no there's no GM coming to me after the test saying, hey. 
how did Mike do today? All right. I think he's like, oh, prove to me that he's not worth giving $8 million next year. Yeah. We're going to give him five or whatever the case may be. You know, like it's a different I, deal. I mean, I'd take five. Somebody going to give me five right now? <laughs> I'll take one. Let's that, go. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So this, this is awesome. And, you know, one thing that I don't think enough coaches and sports science scientists talk about is that time in between the assessment and the program design process, right? Because this is our time to internalize and figure out what's going on. So once you've assessed somebody and you've captured force play data and Proteus data and all these these tools, what's your next step? Like, what does that process look like for you? Like, what are you looking at? What KPIs are most impactful for you? And how do you go about that decision-making process? Yeah, so it's not a one-size-fits-all answer, like unfortunately (laughs) most of these conversations, right? So if we're talking about a golfer, obviously what's primarily important, my KPIs for them might be different from a hockey player. And if that hockey player, well, they playing center or the goalie, you know, where are they? So we're going to have different metrics that we think are more important. I would say a lot of the metrics are the same metrics, but the weighting of the metrics may change, right? You know, there's no physical contact in golf. Like there is in hockey, right? At the same time in hockey, you know, I, not, I have to propel my body at high rates of speed. I got to be able to withstand collision. I have to do all of those types of things. But it's, I would still call it fundamentally, at least for there are forwards and defensemen, a speed sport, right? Mm-hmm. You got to be fast. If you're slow, you're in trouble, yep. right? At, you know, at, in, on one side of that. So I think golf, we're trying to swing the club fast, right? So I would call them both fundamentally speed sports. So we're looking at our speed and power numbers somewhat similarly. Yeah. I weight the strength side, let's just say, higher in my hockey guys than I do in my golf guys. Yeah. Because they don't have to hit anybody. <laughs> right. And no one's hitting them. And they don't have to withstand getting knocked on their ass, as we say again. <laughs> um, yeah. But at, on this, and the golfer is swinging a really light object and trying to move it, have a really high velocity with something really light. Yep. So, you know, if a guy can deadlift 500 pounds, does he swing it faster at 600 pounds or 700 pounds or 300 pounds? And we know there are athletes in sports like golf. I mean, baseball, basketball, you can look at it. Plenty of skinny guys who can generate massive amounts of speed. I mean, baseball pitchers, we see it all over the MLB. Pitchers, guy look like a stick and they're throwing the ball 100 miles an hour. You yep. know, guys in golf who look like a stick, and you're like, man, that guy, you put him in the weight room, he's not going to win any weightlifting contests or strength or power contests, but meanwhile, he's hitting the golf ball 320 yards. Yes. Right? So there's like kind of like this fascial component, I guess, mm-hmm. we're going to have to call it for today's conversation. Yeah. Right? That, that they're using more of a fascial versus a muscular strategy. Approach. Yeah, approach strategy. Yeah, to create their speed. So then I, I have to put the people in buckets, right? By position, by sport, I try to classify people as more of a muscular type of athlete or a more fascial type of athlete. Because if I get a guy who's fast and not necessarily super strong, but I consider them more fascial, I don't know that doing tons of heavy weightlifting is going to make them faster. I've found that as I've been taking away some heavy weightlifting from some of those people, their speeds are actually increasing, especially mm-hmm. in the on the golf side. Yeah. Right. I might still be doing strength work, but I might be doing bands for speed, more multiplanar type stuff, sure. more other things. Right. And I think with those guys, I find that as long as I do a really good job, like with stability of their anchors, like pelvic core stability, scapular stability, that their anchors can just withstand the speed that they're creating. Yes. They, they tend to do well. Yeah. Right. Like they don't necessarily have to have the biggest, strongest prime movers. 
right. create lots of speed. They need to have good anchor systems. So when the fascial system is just whipping that thing around, they kind of do a nice job of uh, delivering it. So then I put them in those buckets, right? So I say, hey, they're both speed athletes. Strength is more important or whatever. For my golf guys, mobility might be more important, right? Because sure. at the end of the day, a bigger shoulder turn in golf, getting more distance in my swing might be one of the key things for me creating speed. Sometimes the fastest way to make a golfer faster is increase thoracic mobility. Yeah. Right? I always tell people it's like a runway. Well, if I have a runway and if you have a short runway and I have a long runway, the odds of me getting to a higher speed than you are just better. Yeah. <laughs> right? So like yeah. for, some, for some people, mobility in golf, I might call that one of the key drivers of their speed. And not that I necessarily change their ability to have speed, I give them a bigger opportunity to use what they've got. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So yeah. that's how we start looking at KPIs. And those are just obviously some simple examples. But, you know, that mobility piece in golf is going to be a big, big, huge piece of what I'm doing. We're on the other side. And strength might be less important. And it might be the other way. Not saying, obviously, hockey players don't need to be mobile. Of course, they do. And not that golfers don't want to be strong. Of course, they do. But the KPI, if you're weighting them, so we just have like a simple, we use a thing called uh, coachlogic.io. It's okay. basically just a, a fancy, somebody created like Google <laughs> Sheets or something, <laughs> like spreadsheet type stuff. But it lets you just like basically create your own KPIs and it does all the calculation for you and makes really nice little graphs and does all that stuff. But I can just put whatever I want. I can say, oh, these mobility markers or these power or speed or whatever tests I want. I can put ranges. I decide what they are. Yeah. I call this the top of the range, this the bottom, this is the middle, whatever. And then I can also say, okay, I'm going to put these five KPI factors. But I'm going to give in golf, mobility is 40% and in hockey, it's 25% or whatever I'm making sure. numbers right now, right? Yeah. And then each thing I decide within that sport and even within like hockey, I even have by position, it's got some slight variation of a defenseman versus a forward or whatever, right? Where then I then weight each piece of that thing separately. And gotcha. then I get a total score, what I would call your performance score, based on how the KPIs work for that individual uh, sport or task. I got you. So does it end up being like a little, what do they call pie it? Like chart. A pie chart, spider graph, yeah, whatever it's got, it is. It's got all that. You can have it like this. And what's cool about it is also is you could put people into groups. Yep. And then you can compare people against groups also within it. Nice. Nice. It's actually pretty good. Like I was just trying to do it myself one day, and I don't know how I found this thing. I mean, that, you know, while while I hate that the internet like is listening to you, and right. Recording all your stuff and like yeah. you know giving you all this crazy stuff. Every once in a while, something pops up, and you're like, "Oh my god, that was the greatest thing that ever happened." <laughs> because it's listening, it actually found yeah. what I couldn't find. Yeah, yeah. And right? it just like popped up in like my feed one day. I was like, "Oh, this is the greatest thing that ever happened." Yeah. So while I don't like it, I also love it. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. Okay. So one thing that I want to do is like, sometimes I think it's hard to visualize in a podcast, but like almost like a step-by-step -step breakdown of how some of the stuff that you're doing might help your athletes. And I think it'll help the listeners kind of visualize too. So you and I were going back and forth before the show and we were talking about when you're evaluating somebody on a force plate, right? And you're assessing their vertical jump. Well, let's say we have three athletes. And one might need to develop or improve their ability to unweight themselves, right? That lowering phase. Some might need more work in the amortization phase. Others might need work in the propulsive phase. Yeah. How might you take all of that information and then coach or program for those athletes differently? 
Yeah, I think you basically, you know, I think if you have groups of athletes, using that example, it's simple to start creating some buckets. Yes. Let's call it, let's call it, right? Like, oh, you're a propulsive phase guy. So, Mr. Propulsive Phase Guys, we might be doing some jump training with you, but we're going to take away all counter movement. Mm, right? yeah. There's going to be no counter it's movement. All statics type, type stuff. All static up, you know, whether we're loading you or not loading you, but we're going to take away the stretch. We're not mm-hmm. going to let you stretch. So even if I take you, like we're going to do a squat jump, I'm going to take you to the bottom. I'm going to say, okay, don't move four to five seconds so we can let that dissipate. Now now go, right? And what's mm-hmm. cool about using a force plate to do that type of thing is if you're going to train them that way is you can actually see if they're cheating or not. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because you will actually see, did you actually counter or not? Because right. the force data is going to show you they did, right? Right. So like what's your tolerance to allow them to do it or not do it, right? If I say do a squat jump, and I have you at the bottom, and because you're de-weighted and I wake you whole five seconds, let's just say it's reading that you're at 50% of your body weight at that point in time. Yep. Well, when I say go, do you go more or less? Do you change? Like, does that number change? Or is it just the force, just go straight, straight up. up? Yeah. Right? So, like, that's a cool thing about a person who, you know, if you're using force plates, right? You might have somebody who at the bottom can't create proper stiffness, right? And they're not able to get that good amortization phase. I might have the person just, you know, doing, like, Depth drops off a box and just stick it and freeze. Right. Right. Land and hold. I could do that on a force plate also. And I can see how well you actually stabilize those forces as well. Obviously, you get that massive, huge spike. And then what does the data look like after that? Does it really quick flatline and stabilize? Or do you have this kind of dampening um, or like? Yeah. I, 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 I don't know why the word ass keeps coming up in this conversation. The term, <laughs> the term we use is spongy ass. You have a spongy ass. Yeah. Like when you land, your ass is kind of, it's like a little spongy in there. It's like, no, yes. I need glue. I need glue. Like, right. you know, right. And somebody else might need elasticity, right? So we could be doing them more pogo typing and more stiffness, you know, types of stuff. So you can create all these different buckets and put people in. But if I just knew you have a 30 inch vertical jump, how do I know why it's only 30 inches? If my goal is 32 or 35 or whatever, it doesn't matter, yes. whatever the number is. If I go, oh, so now if I just do jump training with you, maybe I'll get better. Right. But if I know which phase is actually fundamentally flawed, you know, sometimes it's just working on the eccentric velocity, like the unweighting, how fast do you unweight? But obviously the faster you unweight, the better and more stable and better job to creating stiffness you better have yeah. at, the bo- at the bottom, right? Yep. But we do see that the people who de-weight the fastest tend to have the highest verticals. Yes. Well, they're creating more elasticity if they're good at it. Right. Then you see people who have, they're not stable at the bottom, who don't create stiffness, who drop really fast, and that actually destroys them. Yeah. So they're like, oh, I heard that going down fast makes you jump higher. Well, not if you can't stabilize the bottom, it doesn't. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right, right. So what do you do with it? So, I mean, I think those are easy ways. You can start just taking data and a simple test where, how, I mean, how many people are measuring vertical jump? I mean, everybody, right? Maybe yeah. you work with athletes, not too many people not, but that how that force plate data allows you to be so much more targeted with your programming. Right. Okay. So here is a follow-up question. And I don't know if you can answer this. Maybe you can. But I'm sure at some point you've interacted with people that are like, well, I just don't I don't have a force plate. I don't have access to that. Is there any way you can reproduce any of these findings or, or, or reproduce some of these tests to help at least get people a better understanding? Because I 100% agree with you. Like I've seen the, you know, just kind of random throwing stuff at the wall approach to program design. Well, I'll just touch on all these things and I'll be okay. But like you alluded to, if we can be more more focused 
right? Instead of shotgun, we can be more sniper rifle. We can get a better better result. So is there is there a way for people that don't have those means or don't have access to force plates or whatever could start doing more of this? Yeah, I don't know that you can necessarily get it the same, but I think you can do better. I mean, obviously using like a jump mat or something like that. Yeah. I mean, you can be looking at ground contact times. Yes. Right? We could assume that if you can't, if you're, if you're not good in that amortization phase, you're going to have a high ground contact time. Yep. Right. So, I mean, you could, you know, and obviously there's all kinds of laser beams you can use nowadays. I mean, you don't have to go out and spend tons of money. Yep. Now, I mean, you have to spend some money, but, but you don't, you know, you can have uh, G4, G flight, you know, type of things. You can have just jump mats. You can, there's, you know, uh, push band for a while had all kinds, like with the sensors that you could be yeah. wearing. Move Factor X right now has it, which is a really, does a really nice job. And it even gives you, that will even give you like what they call like pop 100 and pop 200 numbers, which is basically the speed you're moving at X 100 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds. Oh, so okay. they're about to come out later, but then you can say, okay, well now you can start looking at, okay, well, those numbers are basically my acceleration rates. Yep. And I haven't used them enough to tell you what a good number is or bad. Sure. So you start collecting a bunch of data and you go, man, this guy, I mean, we all have the eye test as if you're a real coach. Yeah. There's still the eye test that you can look at someone and go, man, this guy's an athlete. That was impressive to watch. And this guy's not so much an athlete. <laughs> that was not that impressive to watch, right? And you can start saying, well, you know what? All my guys who passed the eye test really well, this is kind of the range their numbers are in ground contact time. Yep. This is the range of people I think who are not so good in my yeah. eye test, right? And and you will eventually come up with reasonably good data points where I think you can start looking at some of that type of stuff. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so within that realm, you've brought somebody in, you've assessed them, you've written a program, you've trained them for a while. How frequently are you reassessing these people? I mean, uh, and you hear things all over the board, right? Some people say, oh, I'll do it once a month. Some say, oh, every three months. Some people, I'll work it into their training. Like, what's your philosophy? How do you? Yeah, look, I, I hear people say every session is an assessment. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. Okay, right. So what, what my tendency to do is I don't love taking full training days away. Like, if we're in the right. heat of it, like, I'm not a big fan of that. So I tend to be a more work it into my program yeah. thing so like let's just say in my initial assessment i did 10 things i'm just making up numbers again but sure. let's just say i did 10 things over my next 10 sessions and depending if they're fatiguing and other stuff if you know there's some state stuff we have to manage should is the right day to do this testing or not but you know obviously on a monday typically if the weekend was off is a good day yeah do some stuff but right like i'll try to pick one thing in their pro like from their testing to do within that day right and say yep. okay are we making the progress we're looking for over here do we need to, is our programming working? Is it, you know, yes or no? And as well as we would like, yes or no? Yeah. Uh, or are we doing a really bad job? Yes or no? I mean, look, and sometimes you go like, you know, I thought that was gonna work. It, it, it didn't, didn't quite work. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, like for any of us to think we somehow don't ever have that happen, I think you're a liar, right? I mean, right. right? And because people are very bio-individual and what stimulus creates what effect is not a linear, process right I mean, right I think, and i think that's where data is actually becoming cool is like we're getting to a much more end of one type of approach to training I than agree. we've ever been because we have all of this awesome information that allows us to do better right yeah. so I, i'm much more of a work it in guy versus a full day of hey today we're not going to work you know we're not going to train we're going to just do evaluation because that's for me yeah I, absolutely. you know I, I always struggle with what do I want as a kind of 
and I'm not going to call myself a sports scientist. I would say I'm a sports science uh, applicator. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I don't know. Like I, 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 you know, there are much smarter sports science guys than me. Sure. But I think I do a nice job from an application, a practical approach uh, with it. And I try to learn the most I can and continuing to try to learn. But I'm always like, someone's paying me to come. I get that I did this full evaluation and it has value to them. But like now that I'm in the flow, do I want to just not train today? They're paying me for it so I can just collect lots of data. Right. Mm, I don't know. I don't like it. Right. And it's yeah. the problem. Like I'm involved with a lot of really amazing companies that do amazing stuff. Exerfly and Proteus and the force plate companies that I work with. Like, and I, I'm like, I help a lot of them. They all want me to do all these studies because they know I'm like a sports science guy. Right. And I'm always like, look, unfortunately, I can't do any study for you. Like, well, what do you mean? I said, because I'm not going to just train someone for the next six, eight weeks using your thing. Yeah. As the only tool I'm going to use. I'm just, I go, it's not fair. Someone's paying me to build them. To get a result. To get a result. Exactly right. That is the best way of saying it, right? Yeah. To get a result. So if I'm going to use them as a guinea pig for yeah. some company, that's not right. I mean, I, I'm just right. not going to do it. I mean, I will put it in and I can show improvements and blah, blah, blah. But I, I don't feel like that that makes sense in my world. That's for laboratories. That's for other people. I'm a... I'm going to go in the gym. Let's get better, guy. Yeah. <laughs> That's what yeah. I do. Right? It, like, you, like you. It's so funny that you say that. I was just having this discussion with an athlete today, but he was like, you know, it's interesting because I feel like you just pull from so many different areas. And I'm like, well, because I do. Because I think that's important, right? Like there is no one way to help you become a better basketball player, soccer player, whatever. It's like I'm going to take whatever I think will help benefit you and I'm going to apply it because I'm not I'm not a scientist in that in that sense, right? I can't isolate it to one variable and say, this is the one thing that made a difference. Like, I don't care about the one thing. It's about the end result and getting the result that we need for you to be a better athlete. Yeah. I try to apply science the best I can to the end of one situation yeah. and try to get the best result I can. And, you know, again, you know, if I have something I'm doing, so like, again, we talked about the jump. Well, if I got a guy who can't create stiffness or whatever at the bottom, we talked about the depth jump. Well, guess what? Training on the extra fly would be a great example there where you're using flywheels well, that eccentric overloading and trying to change direction at the bottom, pretty good way to start training some stiffness. Yes. Right? Yes. I mean, yes. Right? I mean, really one of the most powerful things because it's eccentric overload with velocity. Yeah, exactly. Right? The problem with traditional eccentric work is it's just too slow. Yeah. Right? Yes. It's like, we got to turn the brakes. I got to turn them on now. Yes. I don't get to wait for my eight countdown or whatever. Doing, right. right? Like, I mean, like, who cares? Right. All the while you're sensing it and feeling it, right? There's a big mm -hmm. difference between slow and controlled and you, you can kind of manage pressures and all that versus all of a sudden you're unweighted and then bam, that resistance hits you. Hit the brakes right now or you're going you're gonna to be sitting down on the platform. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I got one more question I want to ask because I feel like I, I really like kind of your thought process on this stuff. But you work with high-level athletes, right? In golf, in hockey. High and low. High and low. High <laughs> and low, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but I think there's always this balance, right, between keeping performance high but also keeping them healthy. So how do you marry those two? Because, hey, man, look, if you're at the highest level, like a lot of times you have enough of the outputs necessary to For stay sure. at that level. Yeah. And health is maybe weighed differently. So how do you kind of find that balance or that ratio with your athletes? Yeah, so a couple of things. One is how we look at our micro macro cycles of our time. Yep. Like some of my guys, like my hockey guys, let's say in the summer when they're in five days a week, 
going crazy. I mean, we have one day, we, we train hard Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is literally a recovery day and we're doing mobility work. We're doing stability work. Like we literally give it a full day. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so we're, we're giving it every, there's some parts of that every day. Yep. But one day it's literally, there's not going to be anything that has high intensity. Yeah. There's not going to be any like, and I, I, I laugh and say that because some of them would tell you that's the highest intensity day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. They're like, oh my God, this is killing me. Oh my God, I'm so bad at this. Right. Whatever. And it could be doing PRI type breathing stuff. It could be doing mobility work. I use a lot of stick mobility stuff because I love the idea of getting something along and putting load into it and yeah. strength you know, type of stuff. I've gotten really great results with that. We could be doing mobilizations technique. We could be doing breathing. We could be doing meditative. We could be doing, so we have one day that that's all we do yeah. during the week, one day, right? And then all the other days, there's parts of that. It could be part of our warm up. We, you know, we could be doing, you know, like my hockey guys, ankle mobility happens to be one of the big disasters we have, right? Like yeah. you wear skates all day for 20 mm. years, right? probably, probably not great. But then the coach is telling you, come on, skate lower. You got to get lower. You need to flex that boot forward. The guy's like, look, my ankle just doesn't move, right? So, yeah. like, I have ankle and footwork and lower body mobility stuff as part of all my hockey guys' warm-up. Yep. Like, every day. Like, we need, like, because I know when they're not with me, they're not doing it. Exactly. <laughs> right? So, it's like, I got to overweight it, probably. Yep. But then all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, I can bend down again. Oh my God, I can skate lower. Oh my God, my stride length's getting longer. Oh, like, okay. Yes. So like that's now speed training. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Right. I mean, so like, and I think that's a thing that people miss out. Sometimes like things that we don't consider speed work or power work or whatever. Sometimes something that doesn't traditionally be classified under that bucket, the net effect is that. Yes. Okay. So you mentioned that earlier. I was gonna. I wrote it down. I said low hanging fruit when you were talking about thoracic mobility. Yeah, the golfers. Right. For sure. You unlock somebody's shoulders and T spine, and all of a sudden they got that longer runway, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, I feel great, and I'm hitting the ball further." You're like the and greatest coach on the planet, right? And it's the easiest thing to do. And you haven't gotten them stronger. You haven't gotten them faster. You haven't. Right. You just give them an opportunity to use what they have better. Yes. Yes. Right. And I think that's a big part of I think what we all have to try to do is like pick off the stuff that's obvious, right? Like, oh, hockey players gonna have ankle mobility problems? Yeah, hello. <laughs> like, yeah. If we don't know that, then what do we do? Right? Like, <laughs> you know, and it, it, it's a big issue for a lot of people, but you know, with your hockey guys, the sport itself causes a loss of mobility in the ankle often, but the sport itself at the same time forces you to try to flex that super stiff boot to get low and skate fast. Yes. So there's like this, opposition going on where the sport itself is making it worse but it also requires it to be elite yes basketball is the same way you want sure. stiff ankles to jump really high but also lack of dorsiflexion is like a massive reason for ankle and achilles issues knee issues it's like uh yeah well how many ankle sprains you have right, right? exactly like, <laughs> right so yeah you're always trying to find that line i mean the ankle sprain thing is less in hockey because obviously they have the safety of that boot keeping there Right, I mean, they may fracture their tibia just above <laughs> the boot line, but right, <laughs> smashing into a wall. But that's yeah. a separate issue. I love uh, it. I love so. it. Okay, big question time, my friend. If you could alter the space time continuum and go back to when you started, give young Ben Shear one piece of advice. What would it be? Be kinder to myself. Ooh, good one. I think that 
those of us who try to really push to be the best in our industry, and I don't know what that even means, the best, be good in our industry, whatever, right. you know, really do a nice job. And there's lots of ways to skin the cat. We can all debate ideas and philosophies. And there are a lot of people doing amazing work, obviously, out there. But I, my tendency is like if I see somebody doing something that I didn't know and it's really good, like my tendency is like, oh, my God, how come I didn't do it? Oh, I'm doing a crappy job. Oh, I, you know, my people are not going to get any better. I, I don't know right. what I'm doing. Like I beat myself over the head. And maybe that's what in some ways that's a positive because it drives me to always be learning and trying to get better. Yes. But as a human, yes, it's not good. Right. It's not like be kind to yourself and figure out how to motivate yourself Yes. without torturing yourself. And I think a lot of us in our industry who have some success do that. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't agree more. Like, I'm literally thinking I, I'm the worst. Maybe I'm not <laughs> the worst. Sounds like you're bad about it, too. But. But you're right. You're not even trying to be the best. You're trying to be the best version of yourself. Yeah, yeah, of course. You want to take care of your your clients and your athletes. And so you're absolutely right. You see somebody doing something and you're like, oh my God, why wasn't I doing that? Or somebody gets hurt and maybe something had a small part of that, but you can't control every injury, right? You blame yourself. So I think it's very important to hear that. Like, hey, look, things happen in this industry. None of us are perfect. We're always learning. So be okay with where you're at while still understanding that there's way more to learn and ways to grow and evolve and get better. Yeah, because I think if, if, if we somehow could take your time uh, lapse continuum here and we could jump 100 years ahead instead of going back, probably all the things we're saying are wrong. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> or, or certainly a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. Right? So it's like we're beating ourselves up and it's not even like what that person is probably not doing is probably not perfect either. Yeah. Right? In the, you know, 50 years, 100 years from now, we're probably going to understand it in a different way. Like maybe we'll actually understand what fascia really does, right? Right. Or, you know, like neural, different neurologic components. I mean, there's so many things that we have. No, the human body is so complex. Yes, for sure. We, we know so little probably, or we like to think we know a lot, but we really don't. Yeah. Um, so I think kindness to yourself and still have a passion for doing your best job and to help your athletes the best you can. But just because you didn't know something doesn't make you bad. Yeah. It doesn't make you, and doesn't make you stupid. For sure. Okay. <laughs> Last but not least, lightning round. So four fairly short questions. Your answers can be as long or short as you like. All right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Number one, what's your career highlight so far as a coach? I'm going to check F2. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, so one, it really just fun. I was part of the 2012 European Ryder Cup team where oh, wow. they, they were getting blown out in Medina. Everybody said it was over and the Europeans came back and won. Oh, wow. So like I was walking in between Luke Donald is one of my clients. Um, and so the Europeans were getting blown out and he was the first one to go off. He was playing Bubba Watson that day. And the course was set up by the U.S. because it was in the U.S. and it was a long bombers golf course. And if people know who Luke is, he's like five foot eight, 150 pounds. He's a short hitter. And the captain of the Ryder Cup team, Jose Maria Ovathabo, came into the locker room. We were sitting in the locker room talking, and he, they put out everybody plays a singles match that day. And Luke yep. was playing Bubba Watson, who obviously hits it 400 miles. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and he and he turned to Luke and goes, "Look, I put you up first because I need a win." If a red flag goes up on the board in this first match, we are done. And Luke went on to absolutely drum him hmm. and set the tone for that day. And the Europeans, the biggest comeback in Ryder Cup history, to win the Ryder Cup on the final day in the singles matches. And then obviously we had the party and all of that good stuff. That's and then awesome. One of the things that I have a lot of 
enjoyment and personal satisfaction, I'm sure like you do when you work with athletes. I have a young kid that I've been working with since he's 13, who's going to get drafted this year in the NHL. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Like it's one, it's cool to work with pro athletes, but you didn't, you weren't really the whole deal. Yeah. Like I have a kid who's been coming to me since a kid. Yeah. And he's now going to get drafted this year. I'm flying up with him and his family July 7th and 8th to Montreal to go to the draft, blah, blah, blah. So for me, that's a pretty big highlight. And A, it's nice to be part of that journey. And B, he's a great kid. And watching a kid dream come true, right? I mean, yeah. And I have a lot of good young hockey players around his age. And it's a dream, right? Where anybody who's at 13 years old tells me they're going to be a professional athlete, that's a dream. Yeah. And, and to see dreams come to life is a pretty cool thing. That, that's amazing. Very cool. Okay, number two. I already know the answer to this because we talked about it before the show, but I want you to tell all the listeners, is it weird training both golfers and hockey players? Is it weird? No, yeah. it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love it because there's a lot of similarity. Yep. But at the same time, the personalities are so different. Mm-hmm. The gate, There's components to each that are really unique. The fine motor control compartments of golf are really different than what you would have in hockey. But obviously the power, the explosiveness, the physical contact, the intensity of hockey is obviously very different than golf. So I really enjoy, for me, it allows me to gain a lot of really good knowledge about both. So I'm not like trying to do, I'm not trying to pretend that I'm an expert on everything. And I know people say, oh, there is no sports specific training or whatever, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. Right? Like I agree, 80, 85% of everything is the same. But if you tell me there's nothing specific, I'm going to call bullshit on that. Yeah. Okay? There, there is specific task within sport, right? So yeah. um, it allows me to really start digging into some of the nuance of each, which intellectually isn't enjoyable for me. And it's like, it's also just a break, right? I almost, I almost live in two seasons. Like living in New Jersey, you know, my spring and summer is just hockey crazy because yep. they're, at, they're, at, they're out of season, right? Yep. And then come the fall, winter, I'm full board in my golf. I mean, I do golf all year. I travel on the PGA Tour and the European Tour. And I'm still, I was in Belgium last week. I mean, I still do it. But my intent, like, my my ratios shift throughout yeah. the year dramatically a bit. And I enjoy that just keeping me energized. Yeah, for sure. Because okay. I always told any trainer who works for me, if you're bored, I can promise you your clients are bored. Yeah, that's a great point. Great point. <laughs> Number three, you work with golfers. What's your best golf round ever? I don't play a lot of golf. I, I'm like a guy who shoots in the 90s. Okay. You know, I, I'm a guy who knows too much about golf and knows that you have to have time to practice and play. Yeah. If, if you want to play golf. And uh, I have a 19-year-old son who now is in college, who was a hockey player growing up. And we spent our weekends traveling around the country in hockey tournaments. And we happened to have a beach house. And on the weekends, we would go to the beach. He didn't want to play golf. Yeah. Sadly, now at 19 years old, all he wants to do is play golf. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't actually play a lot. So now I literally had one of my players get me a new set of clubs the other day. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was like, you know what? If he wants to play, like that would be enjoyable for me. But I travel a lot for work. I work a lot. I never was going to be that dad who, you know, on the weekend came and we're supposed to spend time at the beach or together, let's call it. Yeah. I wasn't going to, well, I'm going to go to the country club and play golf for five hours. I'm going right. to leave you again. I've been, I just, I personally made a decision that he was going to be my priority and that's the life I was going to live. So he didn't want to play golf. And it's like, okay, right. well, here we go. And I was like, you're going to regret this one day. I, mean, I warned <laughs> him one day, all you're going to have is golf. You're going to want to play golf. No, not me. Now, all you know, 
he goes to the University of Michigan and like, you know, he's like out playing golf with all the guys on the football team. He's like, they're all so good at golf. I'm like, dude, you could be way better than them. I could have had you getting lessons from the, the best teachers in the world your yeah. whole life. You didn't want to do it. So <laughs> what do you want me to tell you? Well, I'm sure that's going to be something I deal with with my kids as well. So <laughs> I yeah, get look, it. They're not, they can't. What do we know? That's right. We're, we're just we're their parents. parents. We're, we're idiots. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Last but not least, number four. What's next for Ben Shear? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Anything? So I, I think I'm excited about a couple of things. Most of one is obviously, like I said, I love all this technology and data. And what I love about it is we don't really have the answers yet. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning like we start looking at all this data. Well, what are the interventions that really optimally change these in the best way? Right. So we're getting data and we're getting better, but it's still, we're still in the pioneering phase, yep. right? Like I've been doing technology, like I've had flywheels for seven years. I've had a 1080 for four or five years. Like I've been using this stuff like, and now I'm just starting to feel like, oh, I know how to start doing it. But I also know it's not perfect, right? So right. what I'm interested in is like, how do we take this end of one we discussed and really create a prescription that is so dialed in like, Boom, you should be lifting this weight, you know, 15.7 kilos at this many meters per second. Like, right. like we're getting to that kind of prescription at some point, probably not that far away. Yeah. Or closer. Yeah. Right? So I enjoy being part of that process and talking with and sharing and collaborating with other super smart guys in the industry who are still trying to do the same. But if anybody tells you that's using data, that they know exactly what to do with it. No, no chance. No. <laughs> no chance. No. We're on the path, but we're not there yet. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, but but you can't get there without going down the path. Yes. Yes. Right. I'll... So people are like, well, we don't know this and that. I'm like, I hear you. I go, but how do you, you you want us to be here when we're here, but you don't want to do this? Yeah. I'm like, well, guess what? I enjoy this. I love the learning. It's fun for me. Right. <laughs> like, and I'm and you know what? If this is the thing, I go, you're still here. I'm at least here. Right. Working your way down the path, right? Yeah, and I go, yeah, I go, you're just gonna wait till I get here and then teach it to you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I go, look, and there are people who that's who they are. That's not like a guy like who you are. Like you are guys, we're the ones who like to push and like right. to do it and then and then also enjoy the teaching and sharing of it with others. Yes. Right? Like that's part of the process. Other people, they just want to go to work, check their box, train their clients, go home, do their thing. Like they don't want to spend the time that you don't get a check for. Yeah. Right? Like it's a lot of time for no money. Yes. So if you don't get any personal satisfaction or intellectual curiosity out of it or whatever, then I could see how it'd be so hard. But for me, I sometimes, some of that time is the most enjoyable yes. of the whole job for me. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Ben, this has been awesome, man. Really, really glad we got to connect and, and learn more about you. Where can my listeners find out more about you? Where, uh, where are you located on the internet these days? I'm located at athleticedge.net, N-E-T. Uh, I don't know how good my website really is. So I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> uh, you can follow me on Instagram at ben.shear, S-H-E-A-R. Uh, I'm probably on Twitter. I think I'm ben underscore share. I don't do a lot of Twitter. Okay. I mean, probably in, on social media, probably Instagram would be best. You know, if you want to see what's going on in my personal life and what I like to cook for dinner, you can follow me on Facebook, I guess. <laughs> I, I love to cook and I'm into cooking. So I do occasionally po post a bunch of food stuff on there if, hey. if, you're, if you're into that. Hey, nothing wrong with that, man. I quite frequently will post whatever I'm 
grilling or smoking or working on for uh, meals. Exactly. So. People tend to love food porn. I mean, I don't know yeah. what it's about, but people do like it. I yeah. mean, and I love food and I love to cook. I, for me, that's like therapy. Like I can sit in the kitchen and just spend time. So I really enjoy it. So if you want to follow my food stuff, you can follow me on Facebook. But <laughs> if you want to see fitness related stuff and training related stuff, probably the Instagram's your best bet. Ben right. not cheer. Perfect. Well, I'll get all the links in the show notes. And again, Ben, thanks so much for coming on, man. This is really great. Awesome. I appreciate it, Mike. Thank you. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's episode with Ben Shear. Really hope you enjoyed it. Like I said up top, I couldn't imagine trying to open a private sports performance gym 20, 25, 30 years ago today. I just can't fathom it because people didn't even know that they needed this yet. There was no market. So not only did you have to educate people, but you had to sell them on it. So that part alone is is probably worth the price of admission and just hearing about what Ben has gone through. But man, I'm really into the technology side of this and trying to find ways where we can make private sector training a whole lot better than it is right now. I think a lot of times now we just try and check random boxes. We try and do a little bit of everything. And yeah, we get a result, but I'm all for how can we be more specific? How can we be more detail oriented? And ultimately, how can we help our athletes get better results? So, you know, it's cool all the stuff that Ben has. And if you want to have all those toys, that's great. But if you're listening, don't let that hold you back either. Like you can get a lot done with a stopwatch and a jump mat and some very basic tools that'll get you started on that path with technology, with better assessments. And ultimately it's going to help your athletes get the best results. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me one favor Go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, the Amazon Store, wherever you consume podcasts, and subscribe right now today so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So as I said before, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you, and we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.